Welcome to this bonus podcast, bonus episode of the Stanford Politics Podcast. Our first one ever. First one Ooh. ever. An interview with Patty Solis Doyle. Guys, I had a really good conversation with Patty. Patty began, began her career in Chicago. She worked on a mayoral campaign and later at City Hall in Chicago. She joined Govern, then Governor Bill Clinton's first presidential run in 1991, served as a senior advisor to Hillary during the campaign, and then later through the Clintons' two terms in the White House. She then served as the chief of staff on Hillary's 2000 Senate campaign, going on to manage her political operations, her PAC, and her 06 re-election campaign. Patty then became the first Hispanic woman to run a presidential campaign as the campaign manager of Hillary Clinton's first presidential bid from January of 2007 to February of 2008. Later in the election, Patty joined the Obama campaign as chief of staff for vice presidential operations, later returning as an advisor for the Obama-Biden 2012 bid. Today, Patty appears on CNN as a political commentator and runs her communications firm, Solis Strategies. So yeah, it was a really great conversation. We're excited excited to to hear it. it. So keep listening and hear what we have to say with Patty. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was, it's been about a year since Trump was elected, and you, of course, were surely just as if not much more so devastated than any other Clinton supporter. Um, so now that he has been in office for, you know, coming up on 12 months, how do your reflections on the past year or so compare to your initial, you know, worst fears or expectations when he first was elected on November 8th? Um, that's a great question. Um, I honestly did not think it would be this bad. Um, I remember, um, uh, election night and, um, how devastated I was, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, for personal reasons. I, I, I've worked with Hillary for a very long time. I consider her a friend. I thought she would make a fantastic president. Um, and, uh, you know, knowing her personally sort of gave me that, uh, extra excitement towards getting her elected. Um, I was, completely over the moon at the thought of electing the first woman president of the United States. I Mm -hmm. thought, you know, the country was ready for it. I was excited for um, me, for my daughter, for my granddaughter, for my son. I just thought it was going to be a history-making night, and obviously it didn't turn out that way. But And and clearly Donald Trump showed us... um, uh, the lengths of his depravity on the campaign trail, whether it was calling Mexican rapists or um, uh, going after the Hispanic judge or, uh, you know, degrading women by, you know, judging them on their looks. I mean, he showed the level of his depravity during the campaign, but I honestly believed that, you know, uh, after he won, that he would sort of get it together, that, you know, mm-hmm. he would realize the depth of the job and the importance of the job and at the very least put people around him who knew what they were doing, who have governed before, um, and that he would curtail some of his um, bombastic, racist, sexist, uh, you know, rhetoric. Uh, he did none of that. Uh, in fact, he hired 
people who had no idea how to govern. Um, he continued the bombast. He um, lied um, to the country on numerous occasions. He has failed to really get anything done in terms of legislative accomplishments. Um, and on top of that, he's undoing uh, so much of um, what the Obama administration uh, accomplished, not because he really thinks it's bad, but just because he wants to undo it for the sake of undoing it because it was Obama and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and as a result, we are in a really um, divided country, Um, you know, a month ago or two months ago, uh, we had Nazis marching in the streets. Uh, One of them killed a young woman, and our president's response to it was, there are very fine people on both sides of this argument. And I just, that was sort of it for me. I, I just didn't think that it would be this bad. Right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so talking about div- sort of, you know, a divided country, divided people. Um, one thing mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about, which I think you have probably a unique perspective on because of your experience in the 2008 campaign. Um, so you obviously experienced a divisive primary in 2008 between then senators Obama and Clinton. Um, Mm -hmm. And we experienced another divisive primary in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Senator Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders. It seems to me, you know, I was obviously young during the 2008 campaign, so my my perspectives are different from 08 and 16. But, you know, it seems like in 08, after it was all said and done, and despite the fact that, you know, it was kind of fought till the bitter end, that the party came together. I mean, obviously, the party came together because they elected a president. Um, whereas in 2016, it seemed a much more bitter divide throughout the campaign. How, what do you see as the parallels or the differences between how the party came together or failed to come together um, in, in those two election cycles? Right. So um, uh, it is really great to have a... Um, rigorous democratic primary process. I fully believe that. I believe we had that in 2008. I don't believe we had that in 2016. Interesting. I absolutely uh, supported Hillary Clinton. I absolutely thought she was the best candidate on the Democratic side running. Um, I, you know, supported her financially. I supported her uh, uh, speaking on her behalf. I supported her on television, on CNN. Uh, Having said that, I believe uh, without question that the DNC put their thumb on the scale of um, uh, for Hillary Clinton during the 2016 primary race. Okay, I think we saw it. um, Evidence of that clearly uh, through the the emails, the hacked emails uh, from the DNC uh, where we saw staff preferred candidates. And I think we saw that in um, the debate schedule. Uh, You know, I I remember having to 
go to work on CNN the Saturday night before Christmas to, you know, <laughs> give my views on the debate. And, you know, who the heck is watching a debate on the Saturday night before right. Christmas? <laughs> um, and, you know, um, that did not help Bernie Sanders or Martin O'Malley or any of the other candidates running because they needed um, uh, FaceTime with the public. They needed to get their ideas out there, and the debates really were the best way to do that and scheduling them at times. First having so few of them and then scheduling during a time when nobody's watching just was not helpful. That The only person that was helpful to was Hillary Clinton. So I, be, I believe, I don't believe it, it was rigged, but I believe that it wasn't a truly rigorous process because I think voters really like to, you know, test all of the candidates and kick the tires and figure out what they're about. Right, and, right. Um, and we had that in 2008. Uh, ha- Having said that, um, when I worked for Hillary Clinton in 2008, uh, we battled the Obama campaign fiercely. I mean, it was like war. It got personal. Uh, A lot of my friends worked on the Obama campaign. Mm -hmm. He's from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. David Axelrod and I know each other for 30 years, and we've been friends for 30 years. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, it got personal. And I didn't know whether or not David and I were going to remain friends because we were battling it out. We said we were going to be, but when you're in the fight, you're like, (laughs) you know, it's fierce. And because you're so committed, um, because you're so committed and you're so, you know, um, uh, engaged. Uh, And when it was over... Um, my friends on, and Hillary conceded and we lost. My friends on the Obama campaign reached out to me and said, we want, we want you to come work for us. And, um, it was hard for me to say yes, but then I thought about the alternative. It's, it's, it's either going to be Obama or it's going to be McCain. And, you know, I'm a Democrat and mm-hmm. I believe in, um, uh, gay marriage, and I believe in um, uh, choice, and I believe in immigration right. reform, and I believe in a lot of things um, that John McCain wasn't going to be prepared to fight for. So I said yes, and when I went over there, we had, uh, we didn't have the Bernie Bros then, bros <laughs> then but we had uh, Pumas, which stood for Party Unity My Ass. And I swear, I got I got threats. I got <laughs> I was called a so traitor. These are, so these are people who supported Hillary. You mean who? Yeah, these were right. These were people who okay, supported Hillary, and uh, they were not going to support Barack Obama, and they oh. were not going to vote for him. They were either going to vote a third party, or they were going to vote for McCain, or they were going to stay home. And they considered me a traitor, and I got threats, and I got wasted. Uh, um, because emotions were high. But in the end, um, you know, after the convention, most of them came around. But it took a while. I mean, it took a while. It took a, it took a couple of months. Um, uh, it didn't happen to the same extent in 2016, but mm-hmm. a lot of the Bernie supporters did come around. I mean, th- there were some exceptions, of course. Right. And now... Um, when Hillary lost, obviously there's a lot of, you know, right. uh, people uh, upset Bernie supporters who are com- 
wildly upset because have he have he had gotten a fair shake, you know, he could have beat him. We don't know. You know, we have no idea what would have right. happened if, if Bernie had gotten the nomination. But I think I think those supporters, you know, do have a right to be upset about it. Right. Um, but had she had won, you know, clearly we'd be in much better territory. Right <laughs> of course. So I think that's interesting because, you know, Donna Brazil released, of course, her book, uh, I don't know, it was a month or two ago. And there was it kind of recycled all of that up into the, the headlines. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of kind of backlash from the alums of the 2016 Hillary campaign who said, you know, no, no, this was fair. This is a, you know, constructed narrative. We need to move past this and forget it. So it, it sounds like you're sort of saying that there is a, you know, there was a problem and that there needs to be, a, it needs to be addressed before 2020 in terms of, you know, not anointing kind of a candidate in, in advance of the election. Right. Well, I, I disagree with Donna in that it wasn't rigged, although she went back and forth on whether it was rigged or not. Right. I mean, it was weird. It's, you know, there was excerpts in the book that said it was rigged and then she went on television on her. And I, and I, Donna Brazil is a friend of mine, you know, mm-hmm. um, the number of women who have run campaign presidential campaigns is small and <laughs> right. she's one of them. And she and I got together before I took the job with Hillary Clinton to run her presidential. And she's a friend of mine. She gave me a lot of advice. I admire the work she's done, but she sort of flip flopped on the book tour as to whether or not it was rigged. You know, rigged sort of gets, gives you the um, impression that, you know, it, it, ballots were stolen or people didn't get the chance to vote or, you know, the the, the the actual election was rigged. The DNC doesn't have the power to do that because states, you know, uh, are the ones who manage the actual election in each of their states. Right. So I don't think it was rigged. I do think that there was favoritism on behalf of the DNC. I sure. think um, they gave you know, Hillary a, a leg up by, uh, um, uh, like I said, the debate schedule and the, you know, staff clearly preferring her over Bernie and, you know, doing small things to dig at his message and stuff like that. Um, but uh, no, I don't think we need to ignore this narrative and move on. I think we need to address it. I think we need to fix the problems at the DNC um, and that's the only way we're going to have a fair and rigorous process in 2020. And again, I say rigorous because and the only way, I mean, this happened in 2008 and it happened uh, with the last, with the Democratic president before that with Clinton in 92. Nobody saw Bill Clinton coming in 92. Mm-hmm. Nobody. He was a, he was a governor from a, you know, Southern little small state who mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't really have a, national presence but uh, because it was a rigorous process i mean people got to see him and know him and talk to him and you know see him on the campaign trail and kick the tires and they liked him and he rose above i think there were what six other candidates in that race and in 2008 there were 12 candidates yeah i think i wasn't um, born in 92 so i can't can't help you on that one okay don't remind me how old i am um uh, so for 2020, I don't think we have any idea who the nominee is going to be or uh, or even talking about, you know, people are talking about 30 candidates running at this point. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I honestly believe that the one who's going to 
um, um, get the actual nomination is somebody who who's not even on our radar screen. Interesting. It's, it's somebody who's going to rise from nowhere. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to ask you just sort of about Trump and, you know, the where we are today is mm-hmm. so you as a, you know, political operative so to speak have a lot of experience with, you know, the way that the party and the institution of the party interacts with the candidates who are elected. Um, are you surprised by the way that the Republican Party on upon the election of Donald Trump has embraced him and attached themselves to him and just sort of aligned itself with him and his agenda when in reality he and so many things he said are, you know, kind of diametrically opposed to uh, Republican orthodoxy? I mean, does that surprise you? Was it something that you wouldn't have expected or is it maybe par for the course from what you've experienced from the GOP? Um, I'm not surprised, uh, only in that, again, they showed us uh, what they were going to do during the campaign. I mean, you know, when when no one left him after the Access Hollywood tape right. uh, was released, I mean, it was shocking that no one sort of said, I'm not supporting mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Um but it, as a political operative, it made sense. I mean, this was the nominee. This was the person who had the ability to raise money for all of the other races. This was the person, you know, whether you liked it or not, this was now the leader of the party. Mm-hmm. And now as president, Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party, whether they like it or not. And they need him to get their um, agenda passed, although they haven't really gotten anything passed yet Mm -hmm. because Donald Trump is so wildly incompetent, but they don't have anybody else. They're going to need, they need uh, his ability to raise money for them. They need his ability to uh, go out there uh, and use the bully pulpit to um, campaign for their agenda. Uh, He is still, you know, at 85% with Republican voters. Uh, That's, you know, some pretty, uh, good uh, coattails, um, and his base is, while it's eroding a teeny tiny little bit because of Donald Trump's craziness, it, it's, it's, um, it's still very, very, very strong. And these are the people who will stick with Donald Trump no matter what. And this base is not necessarily with... Um, uh, the rest of the Republican Party, and right. so like Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, and so those guys, the the, the more uh, moderate Republican, needs that base, and the only way they can you know get it is with Donald Trump. So I'm not surprised. Um, you know, Donald Trump almost on a daily basis attacks our Constitution, whether it's the you know free press or <laughs> um, mm-hmm. what have you, and they. They grin and bear it. Um, it's, like I said, shocking, but it's not surprising. Right. So shifting gears a little bit, um, you wrote a really interesting p- opinion piece for CNN recently in which you um, mm-hmm. sort of directly address the floodgates of sexual harassment and assault allegations. Um, mm-hmm. And what I thought was particularly interesting is the way that you sort of addressed head on, you know, the 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 point of contention for Democrats in that President Clinton has been accused 
of of being you know a sexual harasser or sexual assaulter um and that mm-hmm. you know democrats need to reckon with that and, and i think that's something that you know i i admire that you address that so directly whereas so many you know clinton alums or clinton supporters or just democrats in general have chosen to sort of equivocate mm-hmm. in that topic so i wanted to ask you I mean, first of all, how do you think that you, you know, as someone who, as you said, may have played a role in in being a staunch defender of the president when all of that came about, how do you think you reckon with that? And then more broadly, you know, now that Democrats like Al Franken and John Conyers, who are being accused of these things that Democrats seek to be the party that are against, that's against, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we reckon with that? How How do you reconcile that divide? Well, I, I I wrote the piece because I'm a mother, and uh, I have a you know 19 year old daughter who's a sophomore at Northwestern, and I have a 15 year old son who is a sophomore in high school here in D.C. And it's all of these horror stories have been coming out, uh, you know, as these brave women are sort of telling their truth about Harvey Weinstein, about Bill O'Reilly, about uh, John Conyers, a Democrat, about Donald Trump, about, you know, it's, it's, as I write in the piece, it's, it's horrifying to read. And I, and I couldn't really do it in one sitting. I had to put it away, think about it, come back to it you know, think about how I'm going to talk to my kids about this to make sure that my daughter is strong enough and confident enough to, you know, handle if, if, a, if a boss or a professor or a boyfriend harasses her or abuses her and to make sure that my son, that I talk to my son um, so that he never does anything like this, so that he knows uh, to ask permission um, before he kisses a girl or even hold her hand and, you know, make sure he steps in if he sees anybody. So it reading all of these articles sort of made me think about how to address my kids. And I also give, you know, uh, speeches and lectures on college campuses. And I talk about this issue to young women on college campuses. And I just felt like I can't say you know, uh, this is wrong and victims need to be heard and thank God this is happening and this is causing a real sea change uh, in our culture and our society and in the way we look at sexual harassment and not sort of reckon with my own role in working in the Clinton administration in the 90s when then President Clinton um, had... Uh, a sexual relationship with a 22-year-old intern. Um, I was young then. I was um, in my mid-20s. And I sort of looked at the attacks. Before I say this, I have to preface it with, I'm proud of my service in the Clinton administration. I'm proud of my work in the 92 campaign for Bill Clinton. I'm proud of my work for Hillary Clinton, I'm proud of Bill Clinton's record as president. I think he did a lot of good for a lot of people. Having said that, when I worked in the White House in the early 90s, and uh, I sort of conflated the attacks on um, 
about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, with other attacks that were uh, clearly, you know, right wing, you know, he murdered Vince Foster. Right. <laughs> um, um, and I came from the 92 campaign where, you know, he was a comeback kid. And for the first time ever, we developed a war room, a uh, communications war room where every attack was responded to. And, you know, he ended up winning. And I saw the White House as a continuation of that famed war room, you know, the, the James Carville, George Stephanopoulos documentary. I don't know if people have seen that, but it was it was infamous. Um, and I was wrong because uh, to have done that, because what Bill Clinton did was wrong. It was about power, not about sex. She was 22 years old. And looking back on it now, having to face my own children, I need to reckon with the role that I had in sort of defending him, um, and it wasn't defensible. Uh, and I just don't see, I don't see how anybody can read these current stories or hear the victim stories now and look at these attackers in a partisan way. It's just, I, I can't do it, and I don't see how anybody else can do it. So do I think Don Conyers needs to resign? Absolutely. Do I think Donald Trump needs to uh, face the music uh, on the the 15 women who have accused him of sexual assault, not harassment, assault? Um, and do I think Roy Moore should serve in the U.S. Senate? Absolutely not. And do I think Bill Clinton was wrong? Absolutely. But uh, I do agree with some of my Clinton um, colleagues. He did pay a price. I mean, he d was impeached. He was disbarred. Right. He um, uh, humiliated his family in the most public and awful way possible. Um, you know, his what I believe is a is a good, impressive record as president will forever be tarnished. Um, and I really don't know what there is more he can do to pay the price. But I do think that my colleagues um, in the Clinton administration need to stop minimizing what he did. I think, you know, one of the former aides, Philippe Bryanis, you know, referred to his relationship with Monica Lewinsky as a consensual blowjob. And that's right. just outrageous. Outrageous. Right. It doesn't help Bill Clinton in any way to minimize what he did, I don't think. Right. So, so let me ask you about, I mean, so like Al Franken, for example, you know, his, mm -hmm. the allegations against him are, I guess, arguably more minor. I mean, to the extent to which there's a spectrum on, you know, on which these things mm -hmm. can be compared. So do you think Al, Al Franken mm -hmm. should resign? Should it be a no tolerance policy that Democrats have for their, for their people? That is a really good question. And I, my honest answer is I'm not sure yet. It is, sure. it is, it is, a, it is a, uh, I don't think it's the same grade of an offense. It is offensive, and it should not be tolerated that one of our elected officials should um, uh, grab women on the, you know, butts as they're taking his picture. I And the, the photograph of him, you know, I don't think it's been resolved whether he was actually touching Miss Tweedin's um, breasts or not. 
but that's just, you know, that's just right. intolerable. That's the behavior of a, you know, 10-year-old. <laughs> I, right. I, mean, I, I mean, I think, and I think I'm giving, uh, I'm shortchanging 10-year-olds. Um, but um, I do think it's different than uh, pedophilia. I do think it's different than asking for sexual favors from a staff person. Um, but having said that, and I know I'm waffling here because I, I still, I don't know, uh, where I fall on this yet. I need, I think I need more time. Having said that, the only way that I believe men and or women will learn not to do this is if there are consequences, and um, to your behavior that is unacceptable. If there are no consequences, then uh, men and or women will continue to behave this way. I think uh, the entertainment industry showed real courage and really, you know, not just firing Harvey Weinstein, but sort of stripping him of his awards and gills and... Um, uh, the same with Kevin Spacey, and if the entertainment industry can do it, then certainly our governments can do it. So I'm, um, I'm waffling, but I think I'm, 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 I'm trending toward yes. Al Franken should step down without question. I think John Conyer should step down. Okay. Um, but that's that's my yeah. honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That's interesting. So so we're running a little short on time. So I'll just ask you one last question okay. to wrap up. Okay. Um, so you know, as a Democrat, as a former campaign manager, as someone who has seen Democratic politics sort of on the front lines for you know twenty plus years now, how do you feel a year out from the twenty eighteen midterm elections about the Democrats' prospects? I'm nervous. Um, I'm I'm nervous because uh, you know a year ago we lost to Donald freaking Trump, <laughs> <laughs> and that will make any Democrat on the planet nervous. Uh, you know, uh, wildly unqualified, bombastic, silly clown Democrats lost to, and we need to sort of figure out what the hell happened. And there's been a lot of work to um, figure that out. Um, but what we learned so tragically uh, in 2016 is that calling Donald Trump a racist and a bigot and a sexist and a incompetent and unqualified and he can't have the, you know, the button to the nukes, it wasn't enough. It, it, all of that is true, but it clearly it wasn't enough. Right. Um, we we did not have um, a message that Democrats wanted to vote for. Um, we've had a year of, you know, actually living with the worst president that we have ever had. And um, it's helping. And we saw that, I think, in the Virginia uh, races uh, in, you know, last month or earlier this month where we saw the resistance really come out um, and uh, win it for the Democrats. Uh, we saw 
women come out in record numbers in Virginia. We saw African-American voters come out in record numbers. And we didn't see them just come out to vote, but we saw them actually run for office. Mm -hmm. We had the first transgender person win in Virginia. Um, uh, I think there were eight seats that were women in in the House delegate race in Virginia. you know, and we had African American uh, mayors in North Carolina, and a mayor, in, a woman mayor in New Hampshire. I mean, we just sort of uh, people. Uh, the resistance really came out, so I think that's very positive. Um, I think women are really, especially pissed off. <laughs> I think <laughs> not only are we seeing it in all of these sexual harassment stories terms of we're just not going to take it anymore but we're seeing so many more women running in 2018 than we saw in 2016 and for sure in 2014 and uh 2012 i think it's up like something like 42 percent of women candidates um and that's all good news you know the generic ballot right now democrats are winning republicans by 11 points which is huge uh, Democratic candidates, House candidates, are raising more money than Republican House candidates. That's huge, too. So there's a lot of things to be positive about. But as a party, uh, Democrats have still not um, coalesced against a, uh, not against, uh, around a message that appeals to white working class voters, those voters that we just lost so badly in 2016. And that's the part that makes me nervous. Um, uh, So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess, about 2018. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me and uh, talking with us for, for a while this morning. Um, really appreciate it and really enjoy the conversation. A lot of interesting, lot of, a lot of interesting oh, tidbits there. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to pontificate about uh, <laughs> politics. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I look forward to hearing it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, thanks again so much, Patty, and um, I hope you have a great day. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.